The sea borders Hindustan on the east, west, and south. In the north, the great mountain ranges separate India from Tehran, Iran, and China. Intelligent men of the past have considered Kabul and Kandahar as the twin gates of Hindustan. By guarding these two places, Hindustan obtains peace from the alien, and global traffic by these two routes can prosper. Abul Fazel Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank you for joining me this week, uh, and if this is your first time, welcome. Uh, last week's episode uh, was very well received. I'm glad people enjoyed it. Um, this week, we will be moving into um, the, I guess, what most people now or at least what's kind of becoming a more popular term, uh, consider South Asia. Um, now, this episode might be a little bit shorter, as I don't have much time this week to um, prepare as I normally would. Uh, I've, I'm heading out of town a couple of days um, during the week, which is rare for me. Uh, I have a bachelor uh party for a very good friend and um we're traveling up tomorrow and it's going to be basically a long weekend situation so instead of recording this um either saturday night or or sunday um, morning uh, i'll be recording this um yeah it's right now it's about uh, 10:30 on a wednesday evening i'm all prepared and packed and uh just trying to knock this out of the way before i leave uh, uh tomorrow so, uh, apologies that, uh, apologies if this is a little bit shorter, um, but, uh, I do have a good head start for next week's episode already ready, uh, because it will probably be a little bit shorter, um, so you shouldn't expect any interruptions, uh, for the following, uh, week. Um, now, uh, this week we will be crossing the Hindu Kush mountains and um, beginning to reach um, what is uh, South Asia or the Indian subcontinent. Um, now, this region has seen less study by archaeologists than the Middle East and Egypt historically, um, but that has been changing more and more recently. And this region is a place that I think will eventually help shed light on, you know, more of human development. Um, so, to kind of begin this region, we will start with what is now Afghanistan. Now, uh, as I defined the region in uh, last week, or, you know, part of the Central Asia last week, I did say that a very small section north of the mountains uh is part of Central Asia, but there are numerous, you know, plateaus, river valleys, and rock shelters that I would say are firmly part of South Asia. And at this period, uh, where our current episodes are focusing, 8,000 to 6,000 BC, um, the people inhabiting this mountainous region were probably very much more involved with peoples living south of the Hindu Kush. Um, I should also, I'll go ahead and mention the origin of the term Hindu Kush. Um, there are two, I guess, current main theories that I've kind of read concerning the origin. Um, 
it is a relatively new term for the mountain range. Um, it only started to be used around, I think, uh, about a thousand A.D. Um, by you know Persian-speaking uh, groups uh, placed it on their map, uh, and they transmitted that to Arab people, and from there the Arabs transmitted that to Europeans. The word Kush is believed to be a variation or an accented way of saying uh, a Vestan word for Kaush, uh, which is their word for killer. Um, Hindu is a bit more complicated uh, because today um, in the English-speaking world we associate the word with uh, the religion. Um, and in the past, and I'm sure in some places still in India or the rest of South Asia, uh, Hindu or a variation of the word like Hindi, Hindo, Hindukoan uh, means uh, people who spoke a language from the Indian branch of the Indo-Aryan language subfamily. So in this case, the term was a linguistic distinction and not an ethnic or religious term. Uh, now, the meaning comes from the fact that the journey through the mountains, of course, was dangerous and difficult, and many people would die in the crossing. And this is something that's historically true, and even in modern times, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do if you're not very well prepared or if you're not um, being guided. Uh, so, uh, and the people making these types of journeys, they would include um, traders from south of the Kush, and especially uh, those that were captured and enslaved by nomadic raiders and invading armies from Central Asia and other places or states to the west. Um, now, that's, that's the first theory. The other theory about the name is one that was very in vogue in the English-speaking world, at least in um, pop history or um, folk history, you might say. Um, and that was that the name is a corruption of the Latin word indicus, uh, which derived from the ancient Greek terminology for the mountains, which was uh, caucus indos or hindos. Uh, which meant literally the caucuses of the Indians or of the Hindus, depending on which version of Indos or Hindos they were they were actually saying. Now, this theory was popularized and spread by the great uh, traveler and uh, legal legal scholar uh, Ibn Battuta. Um, though I think most academics today support something closer to that first theory. Uh, now these mountains were earlier referred to uh, as being um, uh, either, it's something uh, of a debate with the translation. Uh, I think it could have been considered something along the lines of covered with juniper or as something being beyond the reach of eagles. Um, and this was uh, used by uh, people who spoke some sort of uh, Vedic language or, or Sanskrit. 
uh, and they referred to the lane uh, to the mountain range as, and I'm going to butcher this, so please forgive me, Uparasenia. And there are Avestan people who have a similar pronunciation for that, and this is an Indo-Iranian language, so um, people more to the um, west than to the south. Uh, this is Uparasina, uh, which is closer, I think, to the uh, covered with juniper translation. It's a little bit of a debate. But um, to get back to the people living in the mountains themselves, um, well, before I do that, uh, we obviously don't know any rain or any name it would have been referred to, uh, this mountain range would have been referred to earlier as because um, those are, I guess, the first uh, written languages that cover it and those people had been living there for you know I think at least 1500 2000 years before they began to write it down and it's very possible that they you know were related to or descended from partly at least partly speaking uh, groups that were native to the area so it's possible that uh, that was a direct translation from an earlier language or um, I guess just a, you know, the way it was spoken uh, when it was written down. Uh, we can't say for sure, unfortunately. Now, back to, I guess, the people living in the mountain range at that time frame. Um, so, uh, most of the habitable places in the Kush are on high plateaus and ridges, or in kind of smaller uh, plains near uh, the river valleys. And, um, you know, there is physical evidence of Homo sapiens uh, inhabiting the area since at least between 34 and 52,000 years ago. Um, in small numbers, probably traveled through it earlier to get to South Asia, you know, Austronesia, Southeast Asia, Australia. You know, the first people's... Um, may have come through those mountains and not really stopped for more than, you know, for for more uh, longer than necessary, I should say. Um, the region may have been very um, uh, unappealing uh, at the time this first wave of migrations were taking place out of Africa, um, just due to weather and things like uh, ice sheets and that kind of thing. Uh, of course, it's also possible that they skipped this route entirely and that they just made their way along the coasts up from Arabia into, um, you know, modern day um, uh, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan because there are ways uh, along the coast further south and then... Um, I think there are also, I mean, obviously there are mountains, but they're not quite as steep or as uh, intimidating coming from uh, the southern a bit of um, Iran. Uh, and then maybe after they had lived in uh, Pakistan and India for a little while, some groups made their way back up into the mountains where they met, you know, peoples coming down from the Eurasian steppe or from the Caspian Sea area. Um, 
it's hard to say based on you know the limited amount of um, human remains we found in the area though we have found some uh, they are datable to a certain extent um, but you know it's a very well-traveled region by multiple ethnic groups so it's kind of hard to say a hundred percent in what order or in what levels people uh, lived I guess in so you know, just always keep that stuff in mind at least for uh, now so um, by 8000 BC though at the start of our current uh, season I guess uh, several small communities uh, were forming around old camping and rock shelter sites, as well as, you know, water sources, regular, uh, reliable water sources. And this region was still seeing a bit more rainfall, uh, much like the Middle East, though from what I could make out of the, the study and sources, most of this rainfall is actually happening uh, south of the mountains and not in the mountains themselves and only a very small amount uh, in the northern region. So much like today, the lower plateaus and ridges are very sparsely covered by things uh, like shrubs, bushes, and some smaller trees. You know, they're kind of stunted um, and uh, not too much greenery on them. They're more um, similar to like what you might think uh, in like a Badlands type situation. But uh, there were actual forests, like what you might consider a true forest, in the higher elevations and ridgelines. Um, in fact, most of these forests uh, weren't cut down, uh, you know, uh, or well, they were obviously used for lumber for pretty much all of, you know, history while people were living there. Um, but they they stuck around for quite a while until I think around the, uh, the 60s and 70s when um, Paca uh, Pakistan was in desperate need of um, lumber and things like that for building. Um, you know, this was after they had obtained independence and they were kind of competing with India and, you know, Afghanistan, of course, sharing a border uh, with Pakistan um, was a very... Uh, vital source for uh, lumber and timber. And it was not very well regulated. Uh, Afghanistan is not a fan of a centralized government. Um, you know, it's very uh, regionally controlled by extended uh, family groups and tribes. So uh, you saw, you know, a lot of deforestation uh, that the government did try to put an end to kind of in the late 70s, but um, it didn't work very well. And then, uh, of course, you know, the Soviet invasion and subsequent civil war saw just a lot of destruction of the natural environment. Um, so, you know, uh, at the, you know, um, even by the time the U.S. invaded, those forests had been, you know, virtually decimated and unfortunately um you know uh, there is still a lot of conflict going on and i don't know if conservation or re i guess forestation efforts uh ever really kicked off all that much um during the u.s occupation uh and i don't 
know, obviously, with the current political situation there, um, that there is much uh, ability or desire by the government to try to restore those forests. So uh, that is unfortunate, but uh, we're jumping way ahead there. So <laughs> I was just uh, kind of interested in reading about that uh, kind of subject. So um, to return to the focus point of our current time frame, um, though the this area is a mix of hunting and gathering groups and early uh, wild agriculturalists. They're in the early stages of planting and cultivating wild strains of plants uh, by around, I think, 7,000 BC at the latest. Uh, and these are local strains from what I can see. They might have had some uh, interaction with, you know, uh, things like the two-hulled or two-road barley from peoples to the west. Uh, but most of the stuff they're experimenting with is uh, wild local varieties of plants. Um, they would also begin to try to herd, um, you know, animals. Uh, there is evidence of semi-domesticated goats and sheep and things like that. But from what I have seen, that this doesn't seem to have happened until a little bit later. Uh, possibly not starting to either 6,000 or starting sometime between 6,000 and 5,000 BC. Um, now again, this is based on the evidence that has been recovered, so it could have been earlier than that. Um, but, um, you know, it's very possible that there was enough wild game that they didn't need to try to really control the food source um, the way some other early adapters of herding did. Um, Afghanistan, while there are certainly areas that are very densely populated, um, I think at least into the modern age, I don't think they've had, uh, they don't have too much of a population density. Um, or there, I should say that uh, aside from a few cities, they're very spread out uh, country. There's, there's a lot of people living over a lot of area, but they're not too close. Um, so there, there, there's room enough for the people living in the country is what I should say. Um, now, even though these people are practicing this kind of wild agriculture, um, they are still fairly nomadic compared to other peoples who were practicing uh, the same type of things. Um, they were staying in places longer, sure, um, but they didn't have any great reverence for you know specific plots of land. And that a lot of the sites that show this kind of you know, agricultural practice, um, you know, like, unlike places in the West that see a rise in sedentism uh, and permanent housing, things like that, um, that is missing from this region. There's not really evidence of too many, you know, houses being laid. In fact, I don't think there are any in a lot, you know, in all the places I read about, they were mostly had, um, um, you know, holes for sticking in tent posts and things like that. Um, I don't think you get housing in the area until much later. Uh, and a site that shows some of this is called uh, Dara Ikur. 
now this is a site located in the northern part of a Hindu Kush, right in the foothills. So it's right in that uh, border region between Central and Southern Asia. It's probably, I guess, what you would call right at the start of South Asia. You le you're leaving Central Asia, you're going south, you're just beginning to walk your ways up. And right before you hit kind of the rough elevation, Dar e Kur is right there. Uh, just in the kind of a nice halfway point between the plains of Central Asia and the the uh, devastatingly steep Hindu Kush. Um, now, this was a rock shelter that had been used for millennia. Um, it was excavated in the 1960s uh, by uh, an American archaeologist by the name of uh, Louis Dupree. Uh, Dupree and his wife Nancy Hatch Dupree, herself, you know, a very prolific scholar in her own right, uh, did a lot of excavations and studies of a number of places in Afghanistan uh, in the 60s and 70s, right up until uh, the Soviet invasion. And these two basically wrote uh, the book when it came to Afghanistan, to Afghan archaeology and early history. Um, at least in English, they wrote the book, and I mean that, you know, literally. Uh, they each wrote a, f a few books, some solo, some together, and some with locals. Uh, Nancy actually spent more years in Afghanistan than in America. She, um, she actually traveled quite a bit. She was born in America, but her parents took her to India when she was very young, uh, and then uh, she came back to America for college, but then she went uh, traveling again and returned to, um, you know, a number of places in South Asia. But most of her time was spent in Afghanistan. Uh, she did not die until I think uh, 2016, 2017. She was uh, she was in her 80s, so she uh, she had quite the the hectic life. Um. Now, uh, sorry, getting off track a lot this episode, but there's some nice little snippets I feel like uh, people might be interested in. Now, uh, Dara e Kur had been a draw for humans for around um, 30,000 years, give or take. And uh, what makes the site kind of an excellent place for archaeologists is that uh, the, the soil and the dirt had a lot of silt. Uh, and you know silt is kind of fine and you know easy to move around and this helped create easily datable layers um in our current uh time frame you see um you know between that 8000 to 7000 bc uh time frame uh you see the standard stone tools that you know you would come to expect to have at this time frame uh you know hand axes, pounders, grinding stones, um, stone pottery, you know, or not pottery, but stone bowls, things along those lines. Um, of course, hand axes, uh, bladelets, and uh, as well as what are, you know, very rudimentary hand sickles, uh, you know, curved uh, stones to help, you know, with the harvesting of, of wild crops. So, you know, very much in line with what you would expect for a people in the early stages of agriculture. Um, 
we can also find examples of their uh, jewelry or ornamentation. It's very simple stuff. You know, polished stones, uh, shells, you know, I'm sure that they were traded for or that were found in the rivers that they lived nearby. Um, and, of course, we found evidence of their diet. Uh, wild animal bones, you expect uh, some uh, deers, uh, boar, I believe, as well as, um, of course, wild goats and asses and things like that. Uh, and there's fish bones as well, so they were fishing in these rivers and uh, any other kind of uh, permanent water places that supported uh, fish. Um, and then, of course, you also, um, you know, have, you know, easily identifiable layers. Um, so this shows that the rock shelter is continued to be used you know, to some extent until about, I think, the 1500s BC. So even after, you know, the firm establishment of at least a few sedentary sites, um, you know, you can see that these nomadic peoples or people that were living a nomadic lifestyle uh, were very active and needed these type of um, places for shelter or for finding uh, material. Um, so, but when it comes to our time frame, there's nothing that's too out there in terms of finds. Um, there was a single set of human remains, I think, found, uh, and DNA testing revealed that uh, the individual was from, I think it's, uh, it's haplogroup H2A, and I am studying up on this, so I can do an episode about him. Uh, but it suggests that his ancestors um, were from somewhere in like the eastern Eurasian steppe or from around the Caucasus-Caspian Sea area. Um, and this person probably lived in the 2700 to 2500 BCE period. So he was after this period. Now, it is important to keep in mind that this is only one set of remains, and it covers a very brief period of time from this site that was in use you know, for, again, millennia. So just keep that in mind. Um, they did find evidence of what they considered a goat, uh, I'm sorry, a goat cult uh, from around the, uh, that same time period, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, they discovered these weirdly articulated goat figures. Um, as far as I know, they didn't find any human figures uh, at the site. Um, and what this could show that by this point, kind of a religion focused on herding or hunting of, you know, goats or wild goats had emerged. Um, similar to how female goddess figures came to be representative of like a, a farming or farmer's uh, religion. Um or it could have been a children's toy. But, um, again, I'm jumping way ahead uh, several times in this episode. It's way more than I mean to. Um, let's get back to our current time frame. So, uh, Dar e Kor, uh does not ever support a permanent settlement, uh, even nearby. Um, the only ar architectural features that have been found are, uh, again, holes dug for tent supports. Um, I think... 
enough for around 80 total have been found throughout the various layers. So while there is, um, you know, early horticulture, civil, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, early horticulture, cultivation, and agriculture um, by 6000 BC, and animal domestication has begun, there is no evidence for true sedentism emerging just yet. Um, and I think geographic concerns played a big part in this. Um, though there is one factor um, that I think played a, a much bigger role um, in the region at this time period uh, that didn't play as big of a role in the West just yet. Um, and that is the role of stone quarrying or mining. Um, now, obviously proximity to certain types of stone is obviously not anything new. Uh, places where things like uh, flint or chert or obsidian, um, you know, were obviously important and highly coveted. Um, but what I mean is that um, we will begin to see semi-sedentary settlements emerge, um, focused on obtaining mineral wealth rather than just simple food production. And from what I see this happens very early in this region, and I think it, it could be the first region where this happens. Now, I'm still going through notes and looking into things, but uh, as far as I can see, you know, you know, people have been living sedentary, sedentary lives, um, but it seems like their primary reason for doing this is food. Here, uh, food is certainly a concern, and there are places that are, you know, semi-sedentary focused on that in the in Afghanistan or what will become Afghanistan, and you know, or in the Hindu Kush region. Um, but here, you will also see places that are concerned with the extraction of stone or minerals. Um, uh, now, I don't think that this is necessarily a conscious decision on these people's parts. They're not, or these people's parts. They're not living in the mountains just to get stones. I think they're living here because either they enjoyed it or that this was somewhere that they felt like they had the best chance of survival, you know, what have you. But um, as you know, these are mountain ranges and there's a high degree of diversity of mineral deposits, you know, that would be normal to expect to find things like that. Um, though, due to the rarer nature of some of the stones in the region, they become highly sought after. Um, a, a very big example of this is um, lapis lazuli. Um, there are at least three or four major sites in what is now Afghanistan um, that were the primary suppliers of the rock to most of the ancient world. Um, a lot of the big Bronze Age kingdoms would have lapis coming from Afghanistan. And this, this process, there is evidence of this mining happening right between you know, 7,000 to 6,000 BCE. So uh, in this environment that, you know, might not always give a lot of food, being able to dig out a reasonably abundant resource 
and then use it to trade for better or more food uh, with your neighbors uh, who had a much easier time of getting it uh, would give you a huge advantage when it comes to surviving. Um, it also, you know, um, you know, it would help you, uh, it would not just help you survive, but it would make you important. It would make your people valuable in terms of, um, you know, providing this resource to other groups. Um, it could give you different types of wealth aside from just food. Um, and this is something that we will see. Uh, there is an effort to control this resource in the future. Uh, it's one of the reasons people come to um, the Hindu Kush uh, historically. Um, lapis is a very popular item. And there are very, uh, you know, there are a lot more uh resources rather than just lapis. These are just the stone resources. Um, metals are very important uh, and Afghanistan is a prime provider of these materials as well, uh, which is going to be very important when we reach um, the copper and then the bronze age. So um, it, the people living here, you know, they position themselves well. A lot, you know, you know, a lot more advantageous than you would expect if you're just talking about food production. Um, there, there's a lot more here uh, than meets the eye in the case of the stone, literally in this case. Uh, uh, still, um, at this time frame, most settlements of this region, whether they're based on food production or mineral, mineral extraction, um, they probably remain populated very sparsely or just see population boom seasonally. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, there are a lot of old cities in Afghanistan, um, but they probably have changed, you know, their layouts or um, where they're centered as time has gone by. Um, take, for example, the city of Kabul. Um, we can't say for sure when Kabul was first founded. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if we found, <clears throat> excuse me, a number of proto-settlements um, either underneath Kabul or, you know, maybe further up or down the river, which, um, yeah, Kabul is founded all along the Kabul River. Uh, and, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we could date some type of early settlement, you know, along this uh, waterway uh, to this time period. Uh, and then, of course, as time goes by and, you know, needs and change and food production becomes less, uh, you know, uh, strenuous or difficult, you know, you probably see the true city emerge. Um, and we'll talk about the formation of Kabul in the future episodes. Um, it's at least, I think, 3,500 years old. It may be a little bit older than that, maybe a little bit younger. I'll have to double-check my dates. But we will talk about it in the future. Um, but I think for right now, this is a good place to stop. Um, uh, let's see. We're about 35 minutes in. Wow, that's a little bit longer than I was expecting this episode to be. Um, probably because I went off on a couple of tangents there. 
but I hope you all enjoyed it. <clears throat> I, um, I hope you have a good uh, week and weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, this episode will be up at a regular time. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me at waradrevpod at gmail.com or you can uh, send me a direct message on Twitter or a comment on my YouTube video. Um, I am going to be putting up a couple of more. Uh, I've been, again, doing my backlog the last couple of weeks. I've I've been able to get up uh, two or three for the last couple of weeks, so I am making a little bit of progress and catching up uh, YouTube with our other uh, feeds. Um, but if you are listening there, or if you even if you don't listen there and have an account, um, you, know, you can find... Uh, the channel subscribe to us there you don't have to listen there i know an audio medium is not the best uh thing just to load up on youtube but um you know getting some good numbers getting a few subscribers uh it will help uh you know grow the podcast uh, across all of our channels but um i do thank you all for listening and again i hope you have a good rest of your day and a good rest of your week thank you goodbye